Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm joined in with an international HRV subject matter expert. We have Dr. Jay Wiles. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks so much, Lucas, for having me on, buddy. Awesome. So maybe, Jay, I like to start out the podcast with getting to know yourself a little bit better. Um, do you want to just share with my listeners a little bit about how you got so fascinated into, I guess, like HRV and maybe explain what that even means to some of my listeners? Yeah, sure. So I'll try to truncate it as much as I can because my propensity, maybe even penchant, is to drone on and on about my story. So I'll try to try to try to compartmentalize a lot of that. For me, uh, by design and by train, my discipline, I'm a clinical health psychologist. I'm really a clinical psychologist by training. So if anybody's wondering, like, what does that terminology mean? It means that I am trained as a psychologist to work with the clinical population, those who have clinical anxiety, depression, PTSD, personality disorders, you know, psychosis, kind of everything in between as well through different therapeutics, testing, assessment, and appraisal. But when I was in my doctoral training, I became fascinated with the interconnection between mental health and physiological health. And I uh, was really interested in research relating to 
How could we improve mental health outcomes for those who have cardiovascular disease, you know, diabetes, chronic pain, and so forth? And that just kind of led me down a rabbit trail of both research and clinical practice. And it wasn't until I was doing my residency, which I did with the Department of Veteran Affairs in Richmond, Virginia, that one of my rotations that I came across uh, was just extremely eye-opening. It was a chronic pain clinic for veterans. And if anybody knows anything about the veteran population, these individuals um, are typically very highly motivated people. However, they have a ton of comorbidities. Um, so we see a lot of comorbid PTSD, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, with a lot of physiological ailment um, as well. I mean, I threw chronic pain in there as kind of the mental health side because it's so interconnected, but a lot of, lot of comorbidities. And a lot of these individuals had been on opioid-based medications for years, decades among decades. And so we had a clinic that was created there that was intended to help these veterans titrate off opioid-based medications, but also provide them a high level of adjunctive care for their chronic pain experience. So we had things like acupuncture, guided imagery meditation, mindfulness. We had a nutrition clinic set up. Uh, we had a chiropractor. We had another physician. We had massage therapy. We had all these integrative techniques. But one of the ones that I had some familiarity with, but not a ton of familiarity with, was something called biofeedback. And what was very interesting at that time is that I saw that a lot of these veterans who were very much opposed to talk therapy or psychotherapy or counseling, they were also pretty opposed to this idea of breath work and a lot of the oh, quote unquote woo woo stuff. Like it just didn't sit well with them. They're like, listen, I've seen and done things like, and I'm, now I'm going to do that. It doesn't work. However, if you start to show them how their biology or their physiology inherently changes when they do this practice, and you don't call it breath work, you call it biofeedback, which is just a tech savvy way of doing breath work, essentially, there's a little bit more nuance there. Then a lot of these veterans were really buying into this idea because for them, it's like, I'm not seeing just subjective change. Like my pain is down and, you know, I'm feeling a happier mood, but I also have the science to back it up. Like, look what's happening within my physiology. And what I mean by that is they saw significant changes in one biometric that I was fascinated with called heart rate variability. I never heard of heart rate variability until that point in time. You also have to recall too, that when I was doing training in my residency, there was no such thing as whoop. There was no such thing as aura, uh, heart rate variability. That was a science thing. Like that was a cardiology thing and a biofeedback thing. It really wasn't mainstream whatsoever. But then as the years went on and it started to become a mainstream metric, I just became more and more fascinated with going down that rabbit trail because it wasn't just something that was woo-woo. There was a lot of hard science behind changes in heart rate variability and what that means to changes in the autonomic nervous system, or put even more simply, how that represents state change in the human stress response. So I know the question that you posed is like, what exactly is heart rate variability? Well, heart rate variability as it's at its core is our single greatest non-invasive proxy that we have for changes or dynamic changes in the autonomic nervous system. That's kind of the more broader definition. But if somebody wanted to know what does variance of heart rate mean or heart rate variability mean, is we're looking at the change in time that occurs between what we call successive heartbeats. So we know that the heart doesn't operate like a metronome. It may you may think like it operates like a metronome because it seems like it just kind of goes do do. But we know that there's a speeding up and a slowing down of the heart rate that's a natural part of our physiology. 
And what we also know here too, is that heart rate variability can give us really good high fidelity insight into the changes and adaptations or lack of adaptations that we're having to what's going on within our environment. In other words, how well or not so well are we adapting to stress in the moment? So we can look at that in terms of milliseconds. It will demonstrate kind of for us, especially across the respiratory cycle, and we can open up that concept here soon. It will demonstrate to us essentially how our nervous system is either changing in the direction we want it to, which is well adapting, resilient, or is it responding in a much more fight or flight response that is being significantly detrimentally impacting our overall health and well-being? Now, I know there's a ton of nuances that will have to probably open up a lot of myths that will have to dispel about heart rate variability. But I think kind of the end goal that I tell people is that heart rate variability is going to give us insight or a snapshot into how our nervous system is responding at any given moment. And that can be used in the, in the moment for mental health reasons but also for recovery as well of the nervous system. Yeah, awesome stuff. So I guess, Jay, what we'll do now is I guess we'll unpack a little bit about like how HIV is so closely tied with various diseases and, and metabolic disorders. So maybe do you want to sort of explain um, where did the original research stem from? Like was it um, specifically for cardiovascular health or um, yeah, sort of elaborate on that. Yeah. So the original studies, uh, so the term heart rate variability was coined kind of way late in the game. Um, that is actually something that's more new than it is old. So we know uh, that the original studies were found in cardiology, and these were individuals, especially who were either having a heart attack or they were post myocardial infarction, which means that they have already had the heart attack. And what researchers were finding when they were looking at this EKG was they were looking at these weird patterns that were occurring in terms of when they eyeballed the EKG, they saw everything looks the same here in terms of beat spacing. Why does everything look the same for this individual? But then you look at someone else and there's a ton of variability. It kind of looks a little bit more chaotic. And you would think, oh man, the person who has uh, had a heart attack, like after the heart attack, wouldn't their heart look a little bit more chaotic? No, it actually looks a little bit more structured. It looks a little bit more ordered because their heart rate tends to be a little bit more like a metronome. So they notice that the, the variance or the change that was occurring was not as much. And so in the field of cardiology, at least initially, they were saying, okay, well, we can put some similarities here between those who have had a heart attack and even those who we can predict are going to have heart attacks based on these patterns that we're seeing in the time in between heartbeats. And then later on down the road, so it was kind of well-established within the field of cardiology, like if the heart starts to look like a metronome, like it basically is starting to pace. In other words, the variability is redu reducing that is problems, systemic cardiovascular and autonomic nervous system problems, because we know that the body will retreat to self-preservation in whatever way that it can, which is typically in the form of order. In our body, we talk about this concept of homeostasis all the time, right? It's balance, it's stability, it's order. So if the heart is perceiving right now, and I would say the cardiovascular system, if it perceives that there's significant threat in front of it, the first go-to will be order, mobilize energy, save, self-preserve in whatever way possible. And that looks like the metronoming of a heart or the cadence pacing of the heart 
that is uh, a lot less variable. Now, down the road, there were more research studies that were done, especially from people like Dr. Stephen Porges, who is the individual who, who, who founded and coined the term polyvagal theory, multiple individuals in the biofeedback field that found that there was a direct interconnection between heart rate variability, not just from a cardiovascular standpoint, but from an overall autonomic nervous system systemic standpoint. And what I mean by that is that there are finding that we can get a lot of great information as to how well adapting the nervous system is, and I mean the autonomic nervous system here is, to certain criteria or situations. And that information we can actually use. Number one, we can use it as a proxy to, for us to help determine the impact of stress on the individual and on the nervous system. And then also we can use it as a guide. And so heart rate variability uh, training or heart rate variability biofeedback is really just used as a guide. We're using information from the body, heart rate variability, again, the proxy of nervous system change. We're just using that as a guide um, throughout our practice to help us determine the efficacy of the practice for our intention. But also we use it as a guide, as a, uh, a mechanism for conditioning. Because when people see change objectively, it's a lot easier to come back and continue the behavior. It's like wearing a CGM, right? It's like the information for a lot of people when they wear a CGM, especially if they know what they're looking for, can help and be a really good guide for them. But if it was just something that it would just look like a bunch of numbers, well, they probably wouldn't use it anymore. They probably wouldn't find it very effective. It has to be contextualized so that we see is what I'm doing, is it affecting change in the way I want it to? And if not, I course correct. There we go. That's really good. But if uh, also, if I don't see like anything working, then a lot of people will just tend to abandon it, which I say is also a, a bit of a fallacy there. But I think heart rate variability at its core, it's a guiding data point. Um, it's information that helps to guide. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And it's something that I've always considered as a like top priority to assess out of all the different um, objective biomarkers that we can assess. I've always considered HRV to be like perhaps top three as far as, you know, biofeedback markers. So I guess that sort of segues onto my next point, and that is in regards to tracking HRV, because obviously not everyone will understand how that's done. So maybe do you want to explain um, the different ways in which we currently track HRV? Yeah. So there's multiple uh, technologies or modalities for capturing HRV. So the, the one thing about HRV is it's a really complex metric in the sense that when you say the word HRV or heart rate variability, most people think of it as one singular score. It's, you know, the one they see on their aura. It's the one they see on their whoop. It's in milliseconds, or they might see it in what is referred to uh, as RMSSD or the root mean squared, root mean of successive squared differences. Now, the, the, the thing about heart rate variability is it's not a singular score. It's actually a wide compilation of scores. We have different indices for heart rate variability, those related to time, those that are not linear and cannot be plotted linearly, and then also those that are referred to as frequency domains, which is basically taking information, shining it through a prism or a fast Fourier transformation and finding its component values. So HRV is a very complex way 
of assessing so many different nuanced uh, nuances of the nervous system. But what I think is most important is to identify what most people are doing or will do with that metric, as opposed to kind of what we do in research or what we do kind of more in more complex biofeedback. A lot of people are looking at this um, either as a snapshot, uh, which is the typical way that people have been looking at it, or they're looking at it continuously, which is, uh, and again, not to shamelessly plug, that's what Hanu does, which is the company that I, I founded. So let me talk about kind of what people typically do and the modalities or methods that people would normally use. They normally utilize what's called PPG technology or photoplasmography. Essentially, that's if anybody has a Whoop or an Aura or a Fitbit or Garmin or Apple Watch, these are all indirect measurements of your heart rate and heart rate variability. What I mean by that is that it is shining a light, typically green light, red light, infrared light underneath kind of the surface of the skin. It is looking for capillary expansion indicative of a pulse, and then it's able to pick that up through refraction of the light back into the device that then transmits uh, you know, to, to an algorithm. Now, that could be a very great mechanism for measuring heart rate and for measuring heart rate variability under certain circumstances or conditions. Heart rate variability, unlike heart rate, tends to be a much more granular, high fidelity and sensitive metric, which means that accuracy is key because if you're off by a matter of milliseconds, then that can significantly skew data, which is why we see in uh, a lot of companies that utilize the light sensing technology, really only capturing heart rate variability when people are quite static, when they're very still. In other words, when they're asleep or they are prompted to be extremely still. Because again, the data are, are very sensitive to what we call artifact or light to movement to electrical output and so forth. Another way of measuring would actually be through the direct signal of the heart, actually looking at the electrical components or what we call the QRST waves or R spikes of the heart rate, which is through an ECG or an EKG. Now there's 24 lead EKGs, there's 12 lead EKGs. Those are more research-based. Those are where they're used in hospital settings, but there are so consumer-based. Um, so if a lot of people are familiar with chest straps, like I have right now, the Polar H10, it's what we use at Hanu. It's the direct signal that we're getting from the heart. And, and so what that allows us to do is ensure a much higher level of accuracy and fidelity, but it also allows us to be able to monitor in almost every single condition, as opposed to when you wear other types of devices, you may get it in certain conditions when you're dead still, if you will, as opposed to like ours, you can wear it under all conditions. Now, a lot mm. of people are taking, for the most part, snapshots. Like they're looking at it in the morning as like a recovery metric or at night as a recovery metric. What is it telling us? Well, the singular number is not telling us that much. If you were just to take HRV one time as a snapshot and you did not have a basis for comparison, it really doesn't give you a lot of great information. Uh, it, it's just kind of a number. It's a data point. It's a starting place. But the more and more you take it, especially if you're taking it consistently every night while, while you sleep, like Aura or Whoop or some other device, every morning, like you can use Elite HRV, Hanu, uh, you know, uh, HRV for training. Uh, the consistency is key because what we're looking for is trends. 
because a downward trend in HRV is indicative that your nervous system is experiencing taxation that you're not recovering well from. And we know that taxation of the nervous system, which is indicative of poor recovery, is not going to allow for you to optimize your exercise and could potentially be detrimental. It could actually have detrimental effects um, to recovery, to performance, and to overall well-being. It also could mean, too, that you're under a pretty stressed state if you're seeing kind of that downward trend. Maybe you're going through a tough season of life or a tough season at work. You have to contextualize it. And I think that's one of the big keys. And one of the things that, that that I really try to do is contextualize everything and really kind of look back and journal and understand what is the catalyst? What's the cause agent? What's the thing that's really in place that has caused a result in a change in HRV? And so a lot of people are doing it that way, um, which, which is perfectly fine. It's a great way for measuring recovery. The other way of doing it is actually measuring, measuring it continuously. It's measuring it all throughout the day so that we can see what are the fluctuations that are happening? When is the nervous system getting taxed? And throughout the day, how well are we recovering from it? So it helps us to enhance our self-awareness to how our external and internal environment are ca uh, have caused us stress or resulted in stress? And then are we recovering from those things? Or is it impacting us and then just continuing to impact us throughout the day? So it's basically the spiral effect of anxiety, of stress, the compounding effect that can happen throughout the day. And a lot of times we hear from people, it's like when I look back on my day, it's like, oh man, yeah, I see where it started, but I just kind of pushed through and it ended up, you know, with me yelling at a coworker or me, you know, spouting something I shouldn't have at my spouse or my kids. It's kind of all these stories that we hear. So measuring it continuously is really looking at resiliency throughout the day from a nervous system standpoint. Sorry, I know that was a lot. <laughs> no, that's that certainly gives um, some good context. And actually the continuous element, I think is... Uh, just like you mentioned before with the continuous glucose monitor, we're doing the exact same thing with HRV and it completely makes sense because it's about the summation of the data and like looking at the various time points. And then, like you said, understanding the trends, um, something that came up for me, which I'm really, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on is in regards to uh, like heart palpitations or ectopic heartbeats or someone that has like, yeah, maybe do you want to explain like um, individuals that suffer from those conditions? Like I know that I've been to a hospital before and they've said that I've got like, um, yeah, irregular an irregular heartbeat, right? So I'm wondering, is that why my HIV scores have always been above 110 consistently? Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is this is an amazing question that I that not a lot of people ask about, and so I'm glad that you did. Um, uh, when we talk about ectopic beats, if anybody's wondering what that word means, um, this is actually something that happens to everybody. Everybody actually experiences ectopic beats, but some people experience it a lot. Some people not so much. Um, what's very interesting, Lucas, is that I am also someone back in 20, it was 2016, I started to experience these weird ectopic beats. It was like my heart just felt like it was about to pop out of my throat. Like I would just feel that they're like, boom, 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 and then like stop. And it was just this weird feeling. And I didn't like it. I found my culprit. A lot of sometimes people find their culprit, but sometimes it's a genetically based thing that isn't necessarily uh, harmful, uh, but could be under certain conditions. Uh, but for me, it, it was caffeine. That was 
was back when I was, 2016 was when I was a resident and I was drinking way too much caffeine. Um, and that was stimulating ectopic beats, which are just heartbeats that come outside of the heart chamber. So essentially there's an electrical um, kickstarting outside of the, of the heart chamber that you feel as almost either an extra beat or extra few beats or skipped beats. And if you've never felt it before um, or haven't been aware or the, have perceived what it, what it was like, um, they could be very scary. I mean, they're very, very scary because you think, uh oh, is this the sign of a stroke or a heart attack or AFib? And most of them, a bulk majority of them, um, are not harmful. But if you have them, you should always get them checked out. What that can indeed lend itself to, though, uh, is that the, those irregular ectopic heartbeat patterns will almost inevitably significantly inflate heart rate variability. Now, depending on the platform you're using, depending on the algorithm and the artifacting, uh, you can indeed remove those. The problem is, is if it's patterned, if there's a lot of them that are occurring, then a lot of the algorithms and artifacting don't allow for a smoothing of the data because it just starts to, to skew uh, because everything's starting to kind of be in a regular pattern. So the number just goes up, up and up and up and up. If you have them just kind of infrequently, then depending like on the platform you're using, that data can be filtered out or artifacted, which is what we have. Like for instance, in, in, in Hanu, we, we artifact that data unless again, the data it gets so skewed because there's a lot of what we call runs of ectopic beats. So yeah, it very well may be that uh, the inflation or the high HRV, and I use high in quotes, that you have um, is indeed because of some type of ectopic beat or irregular heartbeat. Um, but this kind of sounds crazy, but this is what we see in the literature. As long as kind of the beats are somewhat consistent, the ectopic beats are somewhat consistent, well, then that's okay. We're kind of like at square one with baseline anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's always good to have some level of artifacting within the device or platform that you're using to account for those things. Yeah, no, interesting and, and really well explained. Um, as far as Joe, I'd love to learn more about some interventions. Now, I'd imagine the quickest and most effective thing straight away, straight off the bat would be to manipulate your breathing, right? I'd imagine breathing is possibly the quickest and fastest way to influence your HIV but I'd love to learn a little bit more about like what else have you seen like in practice or with patients, um, things that can dramatically influence HIV in a, in a positive fashion or positive yeah. way. Yeah, I think it's worth time, if it's okay, Lucas, to explain why breathing is so effective in changing heart rate variability, because it is the single greatest way to uh, enable state change of the nervous system in real time. And what I love about it is that it's very cost effective. You got to do it anyway. <laughs> and so it's free, but also too, um, it is readily available. It's always there for you. It's not some type of biohacking gear that you have to have around that's going to help you, you know, when you're you know upset or anxious or stressed it's just readily available there for you mother nature knew what it was doing when it uh, said yeah i'm gonna have this as being the direct link to changing your nervous system so what it is uh why breathing is so incredibly important is because it stimulates your autonomic nervous system through multiple mechanisms the first one being is that when we uh breathe at a slow paced rate using good mechanics so we talk about like light breathing slow breathing and 
and deep breathing, not full breathing. So not just taking in as much air as you can and expelling as much air as you can, but really putting in a light, slow, deep in the belly type of breath. This does a couple of things. Number one is that it enhances what's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia or RSA. As you inhale, your heart inevitably speeds up. There's a few reasons for this. The first reason is because mechanically, you're actually changing a lot in your body. You're expanding the lungs, which is causing the heart to become compressed, and it makes it into a much smaller space, which doesn't allow for as much expansive contraction. So it beats faster because it doesn't have as much space. The second component is, is that you have readily available oxygen-rich blood that you need to send to all of your vital organs in order for you to affect efficiently be effective. So when the cardiovascular system senses oxygen is readily available, it's going to pump faster to get that to every muscle, every organ that's needed in that moment. As you exhale, then heart rate slows down significantly because of the mechanical changes that I just mentioned, also the chemical changes in oxygen that I mentioned as well, but also too, it causes direct stimulation and is mediated by your 10th cranial nerve, which is your vagus nerve. Now, this is mediated through a process called uh, what's called the baroreflex mechanism. This is a homeostatic blood pressure mechanism that everybody has in order for us to maintain healthy blood pressure. And what occurs when we change the cadence or the pacing of our breathing and how, and I'll talk about how this is related to heart rate variability, because that's just basically the output. As we change the cadence of our breathing, what is, what occurs is that these special receptors that are found in our carotid sinus and the aortic arch of our heart, they detect different changes in blood pressure and helps us to regulate our heart rate upward or downward. And if we're increasing our heart rate via uh, sympathetic action that is mediated uh, uh, through a, a neurotransmitter. Um, it's really modulated through a neurotransmitter uh, called uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine. And then on the flip side, the vagal stimulation that occurs is via acetylcholine. So those are the two mechanisms that we see helping to regulate homeostatic blood pressure when we change our breathing. It'll, it's going to happen automatically, but we can increase its sensitivity through breathing. This is directly reflected in heart rate variability. When we enhance baroreflex sensitivity through breathing, we will see a natural inflation of heart rate variability markers. And that's the sign. Again, it's just data. It's just output that is saying that what you're doing is being effectively changed within your physiology through that simple manipulation of breathing. So I, I get a little bit long-winded on this because I don't want to just kind of skip over the fact that breathing and simply just changing the mechanics, the chemistry and cadence of breathing are single-handedly the easiest, most efficient and readily available mechanisms for changing heart rate variability. And in, in other words, the best way to put it is helping to establish a more relaxed response within the nervous system. The other things uh, that I would say are absolute go-tos, especially if you're looking at increasing baseline heart rate variability. I, I am the first to say, I mentioned this in a lot of the podcasts that I do, is that when we think about heart rate variability, a lot of people are very competitive and they see other people who have, you know, an HRV, like you, Lucas, uh, 100, 110, 130, 140. <laughs> and they say, oh my goodness, 
dude, mine's at 20. Am I going to die? Like, is something going to happen to me? Like they get really nervous about it. But I see that HRV as a biometric works very differently than other metrics. Um, it's not on, it's not on the same scale. It doesn't work like whatever's on a scale, BMI or cholesterol or blood pressure, which have normative values. Heart rate variability actually does not have normative values because of the immense amount of individualism, especially the genetic components, the height components, the gender components. There are a lot of different variables. What's most important is how much control do you have over your nervous system that we can assess by looking at heart rate variability? How good is your recovery based on that data point that is heart rate variability? I say that all to say that if people are trying to raise their baseline simply not as a vanity metric, but simply because it represents a more resilient and adaptive nervous system for them, the single greatest piece uh, of information that we have from the literature is increasing cardiorespiratory fitness increasing VO2 max. Uh, the literature have, have been well-founded to demonstrate that as people attain a higher VO2 max, as they attain better cardiorespiratory fitness, we see an increase in heart rate variability. We see a reduction in resting heart rate. And so those are great health markers and outcomes. What I will say, the caveat to that is that once you start leaking over though into the overtraining and the overreaching in an attempt to increase cardiorespiratory fitness and VO2 max, then we get the opposite effect. So it's the Goldilocks rule, right? It's it's somewhere right in the in between. We're not overtraining or overreaching, uh, but we're not being sedentary. We're increasing cardiovascular fitness and cardiorespiratory fitness is a go-to. The other one would be nutrition. And there, what I will say when I say this is that there are not great research studies on this. However, this is something that we are starting to see a lot more evidence for, but we need more studies for it. It is the changes in nutrition, especially in relation to glucose and glycemic variability and how that factors in to overall autonomic nervous system functioning. So if anybody's ever worn a CGM or you've done that type of, of continuous blood work, what we know is that outside of any caloric intake, right? Outside of any food, people can have massive spikes in their blood sugar if they're experiencing stress because of cortisol release, noradrenaline, epinephrine uh, release. We see huge spikes. Well, what does that correspond to if we're looking at continuous HRV? Well, the good thing is, is I've done plenty of uh, uh, studies myself, and this is, again, not published studies, studies myself, looking at what happens when I'm measuring glucose, when I'm measuring heart rate variability, and I have not had caloric intake, but I'm stressed. Glucose goes up, heart rate variability tanks, very much interconnected. Then let's increase, let's talk about the intake of, of food, of, of caloric intake. As soon as I see massive spikes in, in, in my glycemic index and in my glucose, I will see reductions in heart rate variability. Uh, so those are two that are very interconnected. And it's again, kind of why I continue to say just like good management of blood glucose. Um, however, that you know works for you, for the individual, because it can be so highly individualized. I say that that's an, a really important factor that I have people work on. And the other one, which is a little bit more of a, and this is a big movement of the needle, which is why I mention it. The, the other one is just really good sleep. 
high quality sleep because you can do all of these things for your health. But if you're avoiding really high quality sleep, you're getting two hours or you're getting really fragmented sleep. It's not very great. Not a lot of good deep and rim sleep. We see this significantly impacting overall recovery. Obviously, I think that's well established, but also throughout the day, we will see suppression of heart rate variability. Um, I, I would love to know this. I, to my knowledge, these studies haven't been done, but I would love to know that kind of as people get worse and worse sleep, maybe the quantity is is reduced or maybe as it's fragmented like how does that represent itself throughout the day in heart rate variability my guess would be is that we see complete not complete but we see a lot of fragmentation in heart rate variability throughout the day and a lot less resiliency throughout the day especially if people are lagging they don't have energy and if they try to compensate with coffee or other things it's going to really dysregulate your nervous system so it tends to be uh that sleep is like i mean it's my go-to uh if, if people are doing everything in the world, but they're not focusing on sleep. Uh, I say, hey, we got to start from square one, the ground up, which is foundational sleep. Mm, great stuff there, Jay. Um, I'm curious to know, and this is something that I came across actually myself, and I'm sure you've probably seen the literature on this, is um, the overreaching and overtraining leading to hyper parasympathetic tone. Have you ever seen? Yeah. 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 This is, this is a really fun one because I say fun in quotation marks, but the, the really interesting thing about this is that we're developing new and new uh, theoretical models behind what is going on here, but kind of the prevailing more predominant model here is an overcompensation effect. Um, it is a compensatory mechanism of the nervous system when there is significant overreaching and overtraining to basically rebound up and say, you just tore yourself up. And this is very simplistic speak, by the way, we can get into maybe more of the nuance, but you just tore yourself up. We need to help you do something to repair. And what we see is this interesting swing where people will have an inflation of HRV because the body is just like, we really got to take care of you. But then the next day we see a nasty downward trend. I mean, it's starting to drop and drop and drop because your nervous system is like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, but man, you just really overstepped, you know, the proverbial line in the sand here. Like you can't do that anymore. So it, we need more research to understand exactly why it's going on. The theoretical model again is basically it's a compensatory mechanism and action. And we see it predominantly with high performance athletes, professional athletes who are really kind of putting in a lot of grind time to wear their bodies out. Uh, but I think uh, the more research that we get, I think that compensatory mechanism of the nervous system trying to self-preserve and take care, it seems to kind of match up kind of what, with what we're seeing in the data. Yep. Interesting. And also before in regards to like, obviously there's a lot of um, individuality as far as like what's considered a good HIV score in general, though, things that are, I guess, have a negative effect on HIV, would it be fair to say that they would lower the number and things that are generally beneficial for HIV, they generally increase the number? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a, a really just kind of good, easy way to understand this. So anytime you are, let's say you're measuring continuously, anytime you see HRV start to go in an upward direction. So you see it clear as day every second that the HRV is inflating or it's going up. Barring there's no kind of really bad continuous ectopic beats going on, but stable heartbeat, it's going up. And I shouldn't say stable because that sounds more metronomy, but you see it going up. You can indeed say, 
that your parasympathetic nervous system is actively being engaged. However, when you start to see it going in a downward direction, it doesn't, I always try to uh, provide this response because I think a lot of people think of your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system or the fight or flight response and the relaxation response being nothing but antagonistic against each other. It's actually not the case. Um, they are very quite complementary to one another. They can be antagonistic, but they are quite complementary as well. And what's happening for most people under most circumstances, unless it's significant acute stress, it's actually less of the sympathetic nervous system kind of turning into high gear and pressing down and more of actually a withdrawal of the parasympathetic nervous system. So we actually see less vagal tone. We see less vagal functioning. Now, the opposite, uh, I won't say the opposite, but the more severe cases where your sympathetic nervous system really needs to mobilize a lot of energy, which happens to us, but not as often as kind of more the kind of smaller acute stressors. That's when the gas pedal lays on, the sympathetic nervous system goes into hyperdrive, and we'll see a reduction in heart rate variability. But again, a reduction in heart rate variability is more indicative, at least initially, of parasympathetic withdrawal. Now, that is, of course, too, a mechanism that we have to mobilize energy. We lay off the brake pad in order to mobilize energy. So it gets, it's a little bit more like, you know, nuanced, but I would say that the great way of explaining it is that as you see HRV rise, as we do things that help to rise HRV, it could be a number of things for every individual, we can rest assured that that's parasympathetic engagement. And as we see it go down, something is causing the the brake to either pull back or maybe the gas pedal to step on a little bit while the the brake is pulling back. Uh, we talk about this like kind of like in Formula One. It's like double-footed driving. Um, so like if you're taking a curve, you can lay on the gas pedal and the brake at the same time, and you can modulate them kind of back and forth antagonistically or complementary to one another. Yeah, great stuff. And in, in regards to the parasympathetic tone, um, interventions and ways in which we can stimulate that parasympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system. You mentioned acetylcholine being a predominant uh, neurotransmitter there. I want to share my experiments and experience actually deliberately increasing acetylcholine um, yes. through megadosing of um, not, not through food, but through like um, supplementation. So through CDP choline and alpha GPC, um, I have seen an increase in HIV scores from loading up on these choline donors. Um, at the same time, I've also seen a, a, a decline in my resting heart rate following um, choline superloading sort of thing. So maybe do you want to sort of expand upon that? Have you seen that yourself or learned more about that? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, I will say that I can speak to a couple things, but I think that that's probably less of my expertise area. And, and I love to kind of hear more of your thoughts here. But there have been two com there have been two compounds for me specifically that I have seen really make marked results in overall heart rate variability. The first, as you mentioned, was uh, uh, was alpha GPC. The second one was is phosphatidylsterine. For some reason, those are the two components or compounds for me that I have seen the most movement. Um, I will say though, and this is interesting, and maybe you could provide some insight on this, is that for me, um, it seems like it is easy though for my nervous system to develop a quick tolerance to that. And I don't see, I see it kind of flatline after a couple of days or nights of taking it. And I don't know if that's a physiological tolerance thing to it. Maybe initially um, it's affecting that change in one 
one way or another. And then as the more and more I take it, kind of the more and more it just establishes it as, you know, as tolerance. So that's more like me kicking a question back to you. But those two compounds are ones that I have seen significantly move the needle, at least initially. Yeah. Well, um, with some of those experiments that I ran on myself, they were pretty short term. I don't think I did it beyond a week or so because I ended up because then, then what happened is like, I ended up experiencing the symptoms of excess acetylcholine, which for me was presenting as like muscle twitches, muscle spasms. There are a lot of side effects associated with too much acetylcholine, but another intervention that I've seen work really well. And this is something that I've actually suggested to some people for sleep and they haven't, they weren't taking it specifically to improve their HIV. They were using it for sleep was actually spermidine, which is, I have heard that too. I have heard that too, but I have not tested it or tried it. Uh, did, did they see market change? Uh, there was one guy I recommended it to, and he saw like a, I think it was like a 10 to 15% increase in HRV after one week of wow, supplementation. That is super interesting. I have heard that and I can't remember who, to, who told me about that. Um, maybe there's a guy out there who's like really big into to, to that. Is it Don Moxley? I don't know. That name is just kind of coming to me. Maybe you're not. But anyway, an interesting, uh, you know, I don't know the mechanism of action for that. So maybe you can, you can shed light on there, but that's super interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I find, I, I mean, these sort of interventions, like obviously, as you said before, like the breathing, nutrition, sleep, um, like all of these are very, very, I'd say like the powerful, like the most influential and powerful interventions there. But then obviously there's like that subset of the population that's like ultra into the, really the, the niche, like biohacking space. And they're like, they want to yep. try out different things. Um, so yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty interesting. I, I want to actually ask you another question in regards to medications. Now I, I'd imagine yep. you've probably learned about various medications and how they can adversely affect HIV. Do you want to sort of expand upon that? Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, one thing too. So the first question that people uh, that we ask people, if they're coming in, let's say for a clinical biofeedback session or what medications are, are you taking now? Uh, because that's going to significantly affect kind of uh, how we train and how we condition training as well. Uh, I mean, the, the, the big one that we would see too, um, which is, you know, not, not, not a drug in the prescription sense uh, is caffeine. And I know I mentioned that one as one earlier, uh, but it's one of the ones that we see the most marked change and in, in being clinically significant uh, within that type of setting um, is that it affects uh, so many aspects of your nervous system functioning, especially if you are, you know, well past um, kind of a, a limit and it's different for everybody, depending on how they, how they metabolize caffeine. Uh, but that's one of the biggest ones. And it's probably because it's the one we see most often. It's the most common one that people come in and they drink, you know, two, three, four, you know, however many cups of coffee. And now, you know, we're trying to assess autonomic nervous system functioning. And we're like, uh, is it the caffeine that's speaking here? Or is this your nervous system? It's like, let's just at least dial the coffee caffeine back, or at least just eliminate it so that we can do a better assessment of that. Now, when it comes to medications, 
you know, there are certain uh, 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 there are certain changes that we're going to see depending on the type of medication. And so, you know, a lot of my background is going to be in mental health related medications and prescriptions. Um, so we see a lot of ADHD medications, a lot of stimulants, and we know that those are going to amp up the nervous system quite significantly. And we, you know, what it's really interesting um, is we have seen clinically that these individuals, once they titrate off of uh, stimulant based medication, we see these individuals increase their heart rate variability at baseline 50, sometimes 60%. Like it is that significant how much these medications affect. Um, and so, you know, uh, again, I, I'm not one that's going to necessarily preach um, whether someone should or should not be on, you know, whatever certain type of medication. I would just leave that information out there to say it's obviously having a significant impact on overall heart rate variability and nervous system functioning. The other one would be more of the anxiolytics um, and most specifically looking at uh, benzos. Um, benzos are also one that, uh, not to mention, you know, the effects that it has on so many areas of functioning with sleep and, you know, metabolism and everything else. The one with benzos that we see too, uh, and it's a very interesting one because I had, and I'll just you know mention kind of a case study we had in clinical research, is that we had one individual who was a participant who was on uh, benzodiazepines, uh, he was on, on Xanax. And this individual, when we were looking at his overall markers, like if you looked at the variance or fluctuation in heart rate variability, you would almost think that this person had arrhythmia. Uh, it looked so incredibly odd. Uh, his heart rate variability was up in the three, 400 milliseconds, which if anybody's wondering for reference what that looks like, it's pretty expansive. But we know that benzodiazepines uh, directly affect the cardiovascular and autonomic nervous system and can represent itself in a high level inflation of heart rate variability. So a lot of times what we have to, what we say to these individuals, um, especially if they're looking at helping to regulate the autonomic nervous system and want to be titrated off of these medications is that you will indeed see changes. You will see effects that are going to occur when you uh, take these um, and you re and you either remove them or you're adding something in there. It's just inevitably going to happen. The other really interesting one, now, we need more research here, but it's really interesting. Uh, the studies that have been done looking at testosterone and DHEA and its effects on autonomic nervous system functioning and HRV are very interesting. It's a very linear correlation in looking at a reduction in testosterone and DHEA and the effects on the autonomic nervous system. As testosterone goes down, as DHEA goes down, we see a significant reduction in heart rate variability. What is also interesting is that patients that I've worked with who have who are doing TRT or they're increasing overall testosterone, their baseline heart rate variability functioning and uh, their ability to self-regulate using that as a proxy initially can look awful. And then when they take TRT, especially those, I'm talking about the individuals who like need it to establish baseline testosterone just to get back to normal baseline the amount of increase in heart rate variability and autonomic functioning that we see after they establish a strong baseline 
it's just, it's, it's remarkable. So I say a lot of people have asked me, they're like, is testosterone related to autonomic nervous system functioning? I'm like, absolutely. 100%. The literature is so incredibly clear on this is that, um, I won't say, you know, you should use your HRV as a, as a proxy for your testosterone. No, you need to go get your testosterone tested and go get that blood work and those biomarkers done. But what you do see is that it can impair autonomic functioning. If your testosterone is not within uh, kind of a clinically relevant baseline. So yeah, it, it, so I know that was a little bit less medication on that one, but I, I mean, for people who are taking TRT, I mean, that is a medical TRT. So yeah, I mean, for, for some, for some, maybe not so much, uh, but yeah, so medications absolutely have an interplay with heart rate variability and autonomic nervous system functioning. Well, I'd love to, love to chime in there, Jay, in regards to the, the hormones and testosterone. Um, I would have to say that, you know, starting to put all the pieces together, having a look at my entire hormonal profile at the time when I maxed out my testosterone, which was like 988 nanograms per deciliter, just naturally no TRT, just through supplementation, sleep, nutrition, exercise. Um, my HIV scores were very high. And in, in addition to that, my cortisol was very, very low. Now, I'd love to maybe discuss that with you. Have you seen correlative data between somebody who, let's say, has completed a Dutch test or a, um, a cortisol stress test? Have you seen correlations between that and their HIV scores? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, it, there are so many variables uh, that are at play here, right? Um, when we talk about physiology, Everything has to be considered. And so cortisol is one of those really, really fascinating ones because in the literature, also clinically, what we see is that as people dysregulate their HPA axis and they dysregulate cortisol output, inevitably it has significant impact and impairs their autonomic nervous system functioning. They're both very much interconnected because the autonomic nervous system is directly linked to the central nervous system and to your HPA axis. Everything's interconnected and interweaving by our peripheral nervous system. And so uh, cortisol is a messenger, right? Like, so when cortisol uh, acts as a messenger, as a hormone, uh, what, what we are really seeing is that there is a significant impact in this relay system to the autonomic nervous system. And as continued secretion of cortisol occurs, uh, we see that reflected in a significant reduction in autonomic functioning, i.e., your reduction in heart rate variability. So uh, I, I tell people all the time, like I don't want people to think, oh, like an HRV, uh, your HRV metrics are going to be able to directly tell me something, uh, something specific about my cortisol or about my testosterone or about you know whatever you fill in the blank other type of biomarker. However, it can give us some really good clues as to what's going on there because we know that as our sympathetic nervous system highly engages, as our parasympathetic nervous system withdraws, uh, it is not just simply that system of the body that is being affected. It is other systems of the body that are being affected. And we know that as that happens, cortisol is increasing. Norepinephrine, epinephrine are increasing within the body. And as that's continually turned on and on and on, like it happens with so many of us in today's day and age in our societies, is that that has so many negative, harmful, deleterious impacts on our physical and, and mental well-being. Mm, fascinating stuff. Actually, Joe, I'm curious to know a little bit about 
<laughs> what's on the horizon for the next like five to 10 years in, in the HIV space. I'm curious to know what you think are some innovative applications for HIV. Yeah. HRV is just a fascinating metric because it tells us so much without having to be too invasive. And that, you know, that's, that's where we want to be, right. Is like, as you can reduce the barriers uh, to checking these different biomarkers and allowing it to direct kind of our, our roadmap, um, you're going to, uh, any company that's doing that is going to have a lot of success. You know, I think like CGMs have been amazing because they reduce the barrier of having to carry around needles, prick your finger, you know, check your blood with your meter. Uh, heart rate variability is going to be the same way. Like nobody wants, you know, to walk around and have to check, you know, salivary cortisol or, you know, blood blood cortisol all the time. But if we can get good uh, direct proxy or changes that we're seeing happening in the nervous system, well, that's going to really help us to direct a lot of kind of our own actions or behavioral changes. And so in the future for heart rate variability, I think the big thing that we're going to see is being able to link it and correlate it with a lot of these other markers that we have, whether it's blood glucose, whether it's, you know, being able to also measure from the skin, which I know is coming cortisol, um, looking at, you know, changes in sweat, uh, and, uh, and salt within the sweat and other types of electrolytes, all of these things we're going to be able to correlate and be able to put together more of a holistic integrative roadmap, because I tell people, all of this data and information is great. It enhances self-awareness. But what we also have to do is actively work to regulate these things, which are difficult. And it's not just simply, you know, sometimes just taking a pill or, you know, you know or doing something that's maybe more passive, but there's a lot of active work that has to be done as well. So I think the biggest thing on the horizon is really linking together all of these different biomarkers, um, including heart rate variability and providing really solid direct pathways and roadmaps for people. And then I think the way that we measure is going to continue to change as, as well right now. As technology advances, we're seeing less and less invasive mechanisms for getting really, really good data. And that's only going to improve kind of as time goes on. And that's what I'm really excited about for, you know, my company, Hanu, obviously, but also for other companies that are very complementary and we are, can be very adjunctive in terms of uh, overall healthcare. So it's a, it's a good horizon for sure. Yeah. And in, in particular as well, that, that space really excites me in regards to, um, looking at the applications for various um, gut bacteria and how specific gut bacteria can potentially affect the autonomic nervous system. I think like we've seen, you know, the rise of psychobiotics. So um, gut bacteria that have a, a pronounced effect on the central nervous system and, and cognitive function. Um, I'm, I can't wait to see that, like the ability for researchers to identify which specific strains have a very pronounced effect on the HBA axis or yes. um, acetylcholine production and, and HIV. So that space, yeah, really, really excites me as well. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really cool space for sure. Hmm. So Jay, maybe for my listeners, obviously now you mentioned um, Hanu health and the fact that you guys do the continuous HIV monitoring, which is, I guess, would you consider as like the gold standard as far as assessing HIV? Just talk to my, let my listeners know a little bit about what you guys do um, and how they can connect with you. 
Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity and your platform to do that. So heart rate variability being measured continuously, like I mentioned earlier, it's not something that's done on a lot of the like wrist-based wearables or, you know, rings like Aura. Or, and nobody's doing that simply because to aggregate and have really good data uh, from a heart rate variability standpoint is, is all next to impossible with the tech that we have now. I think we're moving in a direction where hopefully down the road that will change. I mean, that's that's that would be amazing. That'd be great. Our intention is to be two things. Number one, a constant stress monitor and then a constant stress coach. So we wanted to identify throughout the day, what are those small scale granular and large scale changes that are occurring in your nervous system throughout the day. And when we see evidence of that happening, because we understand kind of where your baseline is, if you're wearing it throughout the day, we want to provide general alerts to say something's going on. Like we want you to check in. We've seen kind of like this uh, response of your physiology indicative of stress. Now also is the opportunity to do two things. Number one, we want to log that because over time, if we're able to compile, what are those triggers? What are those things that I've identified to like continue to come up over and over and over again, whether it's commuting or relationships or work, or, you know, you fill in the blank of whatever stresses you, the things that you've eaten, you know, the type of workout you've done, then what we want to do is be able to look back over time, the last you know week, month, year and say, oh, I see a a theme of these things are really kind of dysregulating my nervous system. And then we always come in with key component number two, which is a mechanism to train self-regulation. We always say self-awareness without self-regulation is essentially pointless. Like it's great data, it's great information, but if you don't do anything about it, if you don't have a roadmap for it and actually engage in a behavior, engage in change, well then yeah, nothing's gonna change. So we always include biofeedback sessions, breath work, meditative sessions. The whole intention is to really create a more holistic, science-backed approach to increasing mental well-being and increasing resiliency of the nervous system. So yeah, uh, you can check us out at hanuhealth.com, H-A-N-U. Hanu is actually Hawaiian for breath because that's the key mechanism that we use for change. And then we also have a coupon for your listeners, uh, Lucas. If you just use code Lucas, L-U-C-A-S, then you can get 20% sent off the device. Uh, you know, we ship same day and we love people to kind of be a part of the community and kind of really work on increasing nervous system resiliency. Incredible stuff. And, um, yeah, really, really respect what you guys are doing and, and the approach that you're taking. And, um, yeah, I'm excited for my listeners to dive deep into some of the resources that you have to offer. I'll make sure to leave that linked in the show notes, Jay, but, um, otherwise it was absolutely fantastic chatting. I'm, I'm glad we, we got a chance to chat and I know my Listeners will have found this uh, episode extremely valuable. Yeah, man, it's been a blast. I really appreciate you having me on. Can't wait for next time. For sure, man. We'll definitely be in touch. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, man. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.